0: sudden blow, the great wings beating still above the staggering girl, her thighs caressed by the dark webs, her nape caught in his bill, he holds her helpless breast upon his breast. How can those terrified vague fingers push the feathered glory from her loosening thighs? And how can body, laid in that white rush, but feel the strange heart beating where it lies, A shudder in the loins engenders there the broken wall, the burning roof and tower, and Agamemnon dead. Being so caught up, so mastered by the brute blood of the air, did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop? Leda and the Swan by William Butler Yeats Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton. This is the fifth episode of The Greek Sun, a podcast series about ancient Greek history. Presently, we are in the first unit of that series, which focuses primarily on the dark ages that preceded the classical age. This is the age of Homer, the age of myth, the age of heroes. Before we get underway, I wanted to once again let listeners know about a great book that just came out, It's called The Rape of Persephone, and it deals with one of the subjects in Greek mythology that I will be addressing in this episode. Monica Brillhart, the author of the book, has written a powerful narrative that reinterprets the myth of Hades and the abduction of his child bride, the goddess Persephone. Referencing knowledge of the Minoan civilization and utilizing the most ancient of Greek myths about the Titan War, Brillhart composes a prehistoric romance that neither shies away from the the brutality of the ancient world nor fails to appreciate its beauty. You can purchase The Rape of Persephone on Amazon today, in paperback, or in Kindle version. Now, this episode will continue in the tracks of the previous episode, and telling you a little bit about Greek mythology. I stress the word little. Even in the two episodes that I have devoted to this topic, I cannot begin to give any of the mythological figures and their stories the appropriate amount of time or focus that they require. The purpose of this podcast project is to give listeners a basic understanding of Western history and its cultural trajectory. I therefore speak very briefly about a number of topics that I could spend hours and hours on, given the opportunity. Such an in-depth study would be appropriate if I were preparing someone to write a college thesis on specific subjects, but the purpose of this podcast is rather to make a quick trip through some very weighty and significant subjects. Furthermore, Learning a little about some of these gods and heroes will also be important later on because many later Greeks, even in historical times, will trace their lineage back to these divine and semi-divine beings. You may consider them to be mythical, but if someone believes that he is a descendant of Zeus or Heracles or Agamemnon, then you should probably know a little bit about those mythical figures in order to understand what that individual thinks of himself. Nevertheless, everyone gets a brief treatment here. I will have to leave it to you when you hear something that you would like to know more about to dig deeper and discover more. One way to accomplish this would be to visit my website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. Along with all the episodes, you will find there great ba- great book recommendations as well as helpful pictures, maps, and transcripts to assist you in your search for more information about our Western traditions. One more note before we start. This episode will refer to and review several myths and groups of myths, but a number of key Greek myths will be left out, because I will investigate them more deeply in future episodes. For example, the Trojan War, and all of its associated elements, will have its own dedicated episode in a few weeks, and the tale of Oedipus will be discussed in the next unit of episodes about classical Greece and so on. So, when you finish this episode and wonder if I have missed certain significant chapters in the story of Greek mythology, rest easy and know that there is more to come. For now, let's get on with our continued review of Greek myth. I'll begin with a body of tales focused primarily on the sexual escapades of Zeus, Even people who admit to knowing very little about Greek myth, even they almost always know of the fame of Zeus's dalliances and romances with a variety of females, whether they were mortal women, goddesses, or one of the many semi-divine creatures that inhabit the mythological world, such as nymphs, dryads, and more. I begin with samples of these tales not only because they are so well known among even those who knew very little about Greek myth, but also because they constitute such a large portion of the whole body of stories. Anyway, Zeus got around. He never met a beautiful woman that he didn't like, and being the king of the universe, he rarely if ever passed up a chance to breed with her. I could do an entire episode, perhaps an entire series of episodes, just on the stories of his bedroom conquests. Not that many of them take place in a bedroom. The first of his romantic endeavors has already been briefly mentioned in the last episode. After the Titan War, according to Hesiod, Zeus took the goddess Metis as his wife. She was one of the many Oceanids, the thousands of children of Oceanus. However, Zeus learned of a, pro- of a prophecy, that this goddess would produce heirs for him that would equal or surpass him in wisdom and power. Specifically, after giving birth to a daughter, Metis would then, according to the prophecy, produce a son who would usurp his power, as Zeus had usurped the power of his own father, Cronus. Now Hesiod, in his Theogony, referenced frequently in the last episode, tells this story rather quickly and without elaboration. He says simply that Zeus put her away inside his own belly. Elsewhere, the story is developed that Zeus convinced Metis to transform herself into a fly, and then he swallowed her. As Hesiod does explain, Zeus did so in order that she might think for him with her great wisdom trapped inside him. Now, Metis remains trapped inside Zeus, but her daughter does escape, springing from Zeus's forehead. Again, according to Hesiod, her wisdom equals that of Zeus. The king of the gods apparently accepts this result, and this child, Athena, is the first to take her place among the Olympian lineup alongside those first great six children of Cronus. Some stories of Zeus's amorous pursuits were mentioned in the previous episode as well, when the other Olympian gods were also briefly described. For instance, there is the story of Leto, the goddess with whom Zeus had one of his earliest affairs and who gave birth to the twin gods Apollo and Artemis. As with many of Zeus's lovers, after his official union with Hera, Leto suffered the persecution of Zeus's divine wife for some time. Now, Samiel was a priestess among the Greeks, Zeus observed her faithful sacrifices to him, and noticed her beauty as well. He came down to lie with her multiple times in the form of an eagle, one of Zeus's favorite disguises. One presumes that he changed into some human or humanoid form before consummating the relationship with her, but given some of the stories that follow, and the already recounted story of the bizarre love triangle involving King Minos, his wife Pasiphae, and a bull, we can only speculate. Now, Samil, fooled by Hera into thinking that her lover was not really Zeus, demanded that the god comply with one unspoken request from her. Now, Zeus is so overpowered by her beauty that he agrees to give her anything she asks for. She asks, then, for Zeus to reveal his divine form and not just stand there in his mortal disguise. Forced by his promise to obey, Zeus shows Samil his true deified appearance and she, of course, dies, destroyed by lightning, according to some traditions. Now, according to many of these traditions, Samil was pregnant during this episode, and Zeus managed to save their child somehow, and he continued to nurture it in an artificial womb that he made by sewing the fetus into his thigh. Sometime later, the child emerged and was born from Zeus for a second time, this son of Zeus, Dionysius, was sometimes called the twice-born because of this tale of his origin. Dionysius will also be the focus of a very important religious movement in classical and post-classical Greece, as well as the Roman Empire before the coming of Christ. And there'll be more on that in the future. Now, I opened this episode with a reading of a famous poem by William Butler Yeats, an Irish poet who lived in the late 19th and early 20th century. The poem is heralded by many as one of the most powerful pieces of poetry from the last century, and it concerns a Greek myth about the seduction of a human woman, Leta, by the king of the gods. Now, do not make, mistake this Leda for Leto, the previously mentioned mother of Apollo and Artemis, this is a different woman. Now, the ancients were probably most interested in this tale because the product of their union would be, <clears throat> among other people, the beautiful Helen, who would later go on to become the cause for the Trojan War the face that launched a thousand ships, as she is sometimes remembered. We will talk more about her, too, in future episodes. Per the myth, as it is handed down, Zeus fell in love with Leta, the wife of King Tyndarius of Sparta. Now, later on, I will speak of Sparta as we might remember it today, the Sparta whose culture produced the famous soldiers that held back the Persian army at Thermopylae. But Tyndarius, the husband of Leda and the king of that city, ruled over a completely different people culturally and probably biologically as well, since if he has any basis in reality, he would have ruled sometime during the second millennium BC, during the Mycenaean dominion, long before the 300 faced down the immortals of King Xerxes. Nevertheless, as the story goes, Zeus became enamored of Leta and came to her in the form of a swan. Like most Greek myths, there are a variety of ways that the story is told. In one version, Zeus appears to her as a swan fleeing an eagle that was in pursuit. She takes Zeus, the swan, into her arms, and later that night, they consummate their relationship. And on the same night, she sleeps with her husband, Tendarius. This strange encounter has stranger results. Leta produces two eggs, from which hatch four characters of great importance in Greek mythology. Helen, who would later marry Menelaus, her sister Clytemnestra, who would marry Menelaus's brother Agamemnon, and the twins Castor and Pollux, now remembered as the twins of the Gemini constellation of the Zodiac. Which children were mortal descendants of Tyndarius and which were the children of Zeus depends varying on which tradition or author you read, but the generally accepted version of events tells us that only one of the twins, Castor, was immortal, but that he asked to share his immortality with his beloved brother Pollux. There will be more to say about all of these individuals in future episodes, but let's carry on with the romantic adventures of Zeus for the moment. The story of Europa is an ancient Cretan tale as are many of the oldest stories in Greek myth, coming out of the Minoan civilization on that island. Zeus, having seen Europa and fallen in love with her, noticed that she often went to observe her father's herds of beef cattle. Per his usual, Zeus disguised himself as one of these beasts, taking the form of a most beautiful bull. Europa approached, stroked the bull's sides, and then mounted the animal. Zeus saw his chance and immediately rode away with Europa atop his back. He ran into the sea and swam to Crete with his new love. There, they consummated the relationship, and she gave birth to a baby boy, who would someday become King Minos, king of all Crete. Europa is remembered as the first queen of Crete, and the continent of Europe is named after her. It is is once again interesting here to see how bulls play such a large role in ancient mythology. Zeus takes the form of a bull here, and Poseidon later gifts a magnificent bull to Europa's son, as recounted in the story of King Minos, and Minos' wife becomes enslaved with lust for a bull and later gives birth to a half-man, half-bull, and recall the golden calf the Israelites worshipped in the desert, and the reverence for cattle among the Hindus, and the Cretan bull-jumpers, and the Egyptian goddess Hathor, who is pictured as a great cow in the sky and the Sumerian story of the bull of heaven sent to destroy Gogamesh and Enkidu. In the West, this religious fascination with the bull will fade, leaving remnants here and there, such as in the bullfighting of Spain. But the Nordic spirituality coming down from the North in the Middle Ages, meeting the Christian religion and mixing with it to become the dominant religious expression in Europe, neither of them will have much use for the bull in terms of religious meaning. So here, in Greek mythology, We are hearing some of the last echoes of that story of bovine fascination that probably started with the domestication of the auroch during the Neolithic, a sentiment maybe more than 5,000 years old at the time of this myth's first telling, an idea now extinguished, forgotten, another great story that may have moved and guided the lives of millions through countless years, but is now just a relic in mythology textbooks left for our clumsy examination, much as a broken piece of an ancient wall or an overlooked tool might be. We fumble with it in our ignorant hands, turn it over, and wonder what it meant to its owners, long dead and forgotten themselves. This bovine theme recurs in the story of Io and her seduction. Io was a priestess of Hera, with whom Zeus became enamored. In different versions of the tale, the sequence of events changes, but all of them agree that Io is somehow transformed into a heifer, either by Zeus or by Hera. However Io came to this transformation, Hera sends a stinging insect to pester her incessantly and to drive the heifer across the world in search of relief or escape. Io meets Prometheus during her journeys and also reaches Egypt, where she is turned back into human form and marries a king. This tale, therefore, like a number of the earliest tales of Greece and Crete, also contains an Egyptian interlude. This is fitting since the culture of ancient Crete, as discussed in a podcast in the first series of episodes, probably received a lot of influence from Egypt and transmitted it to Mycenae and then to the greater Greek cultural explosion that followed Mycenae's fall. The story of Zeus's relationship with Danae, a mortal king, a mortal child of a Greek king, like most of his relationships results in children who would go on to greatly impact Greek mythological history. Danae's father was King Acrisius. This king learned from the oracle at Delphi that he would never have a son, but that the son of his daughter Danae would rise up and kill him. So he shut the girl, at this point still unmarried, in a bronze chamber. There's the bronze again, showing us that this tale comes out of the Bronze Age, All-powerful and all-seeing Zeus, however, took note of Danae's troubles and of her beauty, of course. Zeus's approach to her was quite unusual. The chamber was not airtight, obviously, though it was otherwise sealed with no doors or windows. So Zeus took the form of rain and flowed down through the only opening, the skylight through which air and light reached Danae. As rain flooded the floor of the room where she slept, Zeus flowed into her womb and she became pregnant with Perseus about whom we will hear later in this episode. Now, before leaving this topic, I point out how, once again, we see this theme of fathers fearing sons or grandsons or the next generation and worrying that they seek to destroy them or trying to prevent their conception so that this doesn't happen. This recurs again and again in Greek myth. Now, there are many more myths about Zeus's romances, but I will finish with his affair with Ganymede. Ganymede was a Trojan youth, apparently the son of a king, though he is depicted as a young shepherd boy as well. Zeus sees how beautiful he is and comes down in the form of an eagle to seize him and bring him back to Olympus to be his cupbearer. That is Ganymede's official status in Greek mythology, Zeus's cupbearer. He is remembered for time immemorial as Aquarius, the cupbearer in the sky, one of the twelve members of the Zodiac. In the Aeneid, by Virgil, a Roman tale, to which we will come in the next series of episodes, Hera becomes jealous of Ganymede because the boy is also apparently Zeus's lover. Now, some will say that this is an undeniable element of the story, that there is, and there is a great deal of evidence in classical times for this interpretation, this assumption that Ganymede was one of Zeus's sexual companions. The idea is not without dispute, though. Socrates himself, a philosopher of the Classical Age, denies this idea and says that Zeus adored Ganymede for the beauty of his pure young soul. Nevertheless, the tale was typically interpreted as a tale of pederasty in the following centuries, whatever its original interpretation may have been. And this is important because it brings up a cultural phenomenon that will be distinctive of Greece when compared to other Western cultures. Now, homosexuality will always play some part in all of these cultures and their histories, but in Greek culture, it is much more notable part of the romantic history of various important figures. Indeed, first-time readers these days of Plato may be shocked when they read some of his shorter dialogues, such as Charmides or Lysis, in which the sexual desire for young boys is openly discussed as a matter of fact among the dialogue participants. It should be noted that, while Socrates may have protested the idea that Ganymede and Zeus were lovers, he himself speaks lustfully of young men in these dialogues. Now in a future episode, I will go on at length about this topic. Right now, we are still in the prehistory of Greece. When we get to actual historical times, with a plethora of written documents and revealing artwork, it will be more appropriate to speak on such specific matters in Greek culture. Meanwhile, it is time to wrap up the romantic adventures of Zeus. His loins produced many heroes and demigods, about whom we will continue to hear later in this episode, and in coming episodes about the mythology in the so-called Dark Ages of Greece. But there are many other myths to discover and to study that have little or nothing to do with Zeus or his wandering eye. Let's get on with Prometheus, Perseus, Daedalus and Icarus, Heracles, and so on. Continue with the story of Persephone. Many of you may already be familiar with it to some extent. Perhaps you learned of it in school. The bare bones of that tale are that Hades emerged from the underworld and kidnapped the daughter of Demeter, taking her back down to his dark home beneath the earth, where she rules part of the year as his queen. Now, there is a great deal of historical and archaeological evidence tying this tale to Cretan myths, to the Minoan civilization there. Perhaps someday, Linear A the written language of Minoan society, will be deciphered and we will be able to speak much more precisely about the origins of Greek mythology's most primal tales, such as this one. Until then, we just have the tale itself and scraps of writing and fragments of relics here and there to tell us something more about the meaning of this story. Monica Brillhardt's book, The Rape of Persephone, which I advertised at the beginning of this episode, is not only a great novel but also an excellent reimagining of some of the fundamentals of Greek myth end of the Minoan connection. But back to the story as we have it. Demeter was the harvest goddess of the Greeks, and such goddesses are also by nature fertility goddesses, though not strictly in the sense of lustful passion like Aphrodite, but rather goddesses of fecundity, of prosperousness, of plentiful grain harvests, and heavy succulent fruit in the orchards, and olives hanging in ripe bunches. Demeter was also one of the children of Cronus, and a sister of Zeus. Zeus had one child with her. Their daughter's name was Persephone. According to this tale, Persephone was wandering one day in the fields, presumably under the shining sun, when Hades, her uncle and the god of the underworld, emerged from a suddenly opened fault in the earth and captured her, bringing her back down to his subterranean realm and making her his wife, the queen of the dead. Known as the Rape of Persephone, this tale and all its unfolding tries to explain the changing of the seasons. Therefore, we presume that it must be a very old story, perhaps even much older than the Minoans, who may have just been telling a story that they themselves had inherited. Now, the name of Persephone probably has Proto-Indo-European roots, as the ancient Sanskrit of India even has a similar word meaning ear of grain, suggesting that Persephone in some way may have been worshipped very far back in Indo-European history, back perhaps to the earliest farmers of the Neolithic even. But interestingly, there are also Mesopotamian connections to this story, as the ancient Sumerians also has a story about a goddess being abducted into the underworld where she became queen. Now, In the Greek story, Persephone's mother, Demeter, was of course distraught when her daughter disappeared. Hecate, a previously mentioned goddess of diverse talents, helps her to look for her divine daughter. After some indefinite period of time searching, Demeter learns that Persephone has been abducted by her brother Hades. She protested to Zeus. Either as a result of Persephone's disappearance or due to Demeter's influence, the loss of Persephone also plagues the world above. Plants and trees stop growing. No fruit is produced. No harvest is forthcoming. Zeus, having condoned his brother Hades' actions ahead of time, now regrets it, especially after Demeter pleads with him. He orders Hermes to go and retrieve Demeter's daughter. Hades, however, is not so easily convinced to let go of the girl that Zeus had promised him. He tricks Persephone and has her eat seeds from one of the pomegranates of his realm. Now, Pearl warning from Zeus to Demeter earlier in the story... Persephone would only be allowed to return to her mother so long as she did not eat any of the food of the underworld. Having been tricked into breaking this taboo in a classic Greek plot twist, Persephone's promised release is altered. This is just another example of the Greek embrace of tragedy, of the way that simple decisions, seemingly innocent and unimportant, can drastically alter one's life irrevocably, usually for the worse. Zeus arranges a compromise between Demeter and Hades. Persephone will remain in Tartarus, the world below, with Hades for some portion of the year. At the end of this juncture, she will emerge from below and return to her mother, the goddess of the harvest. One early tradition places Persephone in the underworld for four months of the year. A later tradition says six. Thus, winter and spring are explained for the ancient Greeks. Now, most of the aforementioned story is taken from the Homeric Hymn to Demeter, a religious song probably composed sometime during the Homeric era and utilized in the same meter and style as the works of Homer. Now, Persephone and Demeter, both separately and together like Dionysius, are the focuses of cultic worship in both ancient and classical Greece. I'm going to delve deeper into these cults and their rituals when we come to the next unit of episodes on classical Greece. All I would say now about this myth is that Persephone takes her place here as the guardian of the order of the seasons. Just as her mother is the guardian of the harvest, it is Persephone who shepherds in the warmth and moisture of spring and summer, and her departure into the depths is like the ear of grain that must fall to earth and die so that it might bring forth new life the following year. And now for a medley of important myths. Another early story of Greek mythology concern, concerns Prometheus. Now, Prometheus was one of the Titans, and apparently one that was not condemned by Zeus after the Titanomachy. Translated, Prometheus's name could be rendered as foresight. It is presumed, without any textual evidence to support it, that Prometheus either didn't play a part in the war versus the Titans, or that he was on Zeus's side. This explains how Prometheus is even in a position to put himself in opposition to Zeus sometime after the Titan War. There are various versions of the story, but they all focus around one idea, that Prometheus gave fire to humanity. One version suggests that he gave it back to humanity after it had been taken away by Zeus, while others declare that a human knowledge of the use of fire originates with this Titan. Regardless, the story is not simply about the use of fire, but rather, it is a savior story. And the fire is not just the combustion of wood, heat, and oxygen. For the Greeks, Prometheus is the one who provided them with the means for civilization, not just fire, but knowledge, technology, and so on. Now Prometheus angers Zeus, however. According to most traditions, it is this assistance to mankind which earns him Zeus's disfavor. Like the god of Noah in the Bible, Zeus had come to look upon humans with disgust and was ready to be rid of them, but Prometheus revived their hopes with the tools of civilization. So Zeus cruelly revenged himself upon Prometheus. He chained the rebellious titan to a cliff face or a stony crag and sent an eagle to tear out his liver. Since Prometheus is by nature immortal, his liver grows back after each attack. But the eagle returns every day to inflict the same torturous punishment on him over and over again, his liver regenerating just in time to be torn from his belly again the next day. According to Hesiod, after a passage of many years, Heracles, about whom we will hear soon, comes and frees Prometheus. Much later, Aeschylus, a playwright of classical Greece, will adapt this tale and add many new interpretations to it, but we will come to that sometime next year, probably. Now, Prometheus had brothers, he and they all being the sons of the titan Japetus. Among his brothers was Epimetheus, whose name translated means hindsight or afterthought. Fittingly, just as Prometheus is depicted as wise, Epimetheus is remembered as a foolish being. Ignoring advice to reject gifts from the gods, Epimetheus accepts a wife from Zeus. Zeus, still angry after even after punishing Prometheus so cruelly and resentful towards a humanity that has been gifted with the tools not just for survival, but for prosperity in the world, decides to dupe Prometheus's foolish brother and burden humanity with a curse to accompany their prosperity. From the gods, Epimetheus receives his wife. Her name is Pandora, which means all gift, apparently because her body and personality were composed by multiple gods, such as Hephaestus, Athena, and Hermes, and others. Beautiful to behold, Pandora is really a living trick. She brings with her to the marriage, with Epimetheus, a jar, remembered now as Pandora's box. She is warned not to open the jar, but she cannot resist, and so she unseals it. From inside the jar escape all the evils that plague humanity. Presumably, this includes tangible things, such as disease and war, but also jealousy, misery, spite, and so on. According to Hesiod, only hope remains inside the jar, but he does not explain what this means. Pandora is described as having been made very beautiful by the gods, but also given a deceitful mind. Many see her as a Greek way of explaining not just the existence of evil in the world, but also as a literary manifestation of male frustration with female nature. Many of the major and influential tales of Greek mythology deal with heroes, famous humans who are either wholly mortal, or only semi-divine. The name Perseus is still recalled thousands of years later, even if his specific deeds and background are not. Like many heroes in ancient Greece, the origin of the tale is in another love affair of Zeus, Danae, daughter of King Acrisius, as mentioned earlier in this episode, conceived a child with Zeus after he penetrated the confines of the sealed room in which her father had placed her, disguising himself as a rain shower that flooded the chamber and poured into her womb. Now Acrisius, fearing Danae's child, placed both of them in a chest of some sort and cast them into the sea. This sounds a lot like the stories told about Moses and about Sargon of Akkad, it leads one to wonder just how far back this mythological theme goes. Anyway, Danae and her son are saved when the chest comes ashore on an island. After Perseus has grown, the king of the island desires to marry Danae, but wishes to banish Perseus, presumably so that his own heirs, to be produced by Danae, do not have any competition. So, he invites Perseus to a festive dinner, and requires each guest to bring a horse as a gift, knowing that Perseus has no such horse. Perseus tells the king to ask for any other gift and promises to produce it. The king cunningly asks for the head of Medusa. Medusa was one of the three Gorgon sisters and the only one that was mortal. In modern tellings, Medusa is typically pictured as a fierce visaged woman with writhing snakes in place of hair. This seems to be a later tradition. In the earliest tales, she is a beautiful woman who is to be feared not for her ugliness, but for her ability to turn to stone whomever looked upon her. Now, Perseus, after many adventures, acquires a brightly polished magical shield. He uses it to catch Medusa's reflection, and, thus not seeing her actual form but only her reflection, he is able to slay her, cutting off her head with a magical sword which he also acquired in his adventures. On his way back home, Perseus saves the beautiful Andromeda, who has been chained to a rock near the ocean in order order to be sacrificed to a sea monster. He slays the monster and takes Andromeda as his wife. Later, Medusa's head is offered to the gods, and it becomes part of the famous Aegis of Zeus. This Aegis was sometimes depicted as a shield or a breastplate, or sometimes as a device which Zeus would hold aloft, inspiring terror in all his enemies. He lent this out at times to other gods, as we will see when we come to the Iliad. From the blood-spurting neck of the the decapitated Medusa sprang the famous Pegasus, the winged horse of myth, would go on to take part in other stories, which I will not get into here. Now, Orpheus is an unusual hero for Greek myth in that he is not remembered primarily for feats of physical strength or daring, but rather for his poetry and music. He was considered by many Greeks to be the godfather, so to speak, of all lyricism. His father in many traditions was Apollo, though others speak of him as a mortal born to a king. Orpheus is remembered today primarily for his descent into the underworld. This theme is seen again and again in mythology, that of the hero descending into the underworld and then returning to the world above, usually bringing back some kind of knowledge or wisdom, though it may involve the retrieval of a physical object or a person, or the same intent anyway. We will see this again in future podcast episodes with a variety of myths lasting right up through the time of Jesus and beyond. In the case of Orpheus, the most well-known version of his journey describes his desire to retrieve his dead wife, Eurydice, from the realm of Hades. She dies on her wedding day, trying to escape a satyr who is chasing her. Now, satyrs are Greek mythical creatures with the upper body of a man and the lower portions of a goat. They were lustful and ever-ready creatures who were always on the lookout for passing human females to rape. Running away from this satyr, Eurydice is bitten by a poisonous snake. And dies. Now, Orpheus, overwrought with grief and already a master of musical talent, begins to play songs of unspeakable sadness. Moved by his sorrow and his music, the gods advise him to travel down to the underworld to try to appeal to Hades and Persephone to release his love from death's grip. Orpheus makes the journey. His dedication and his music impress the king and queen of the dead so much so that they agree to release Eurydice, his wife, But there is a condition. She must follow him back to the surface world, and he must not look back at her until they are both back in the sunlight. Orpheus fails this test of faith and obedience to the gods. When he has crossed back over into the light, he does not wait for Eurydice to do the same, and he looks back desperately to see her. He sees her, but then his beloved recedes back into the darkness, now lost forever and without appeal to death. If this sounds familiar, it may be that you are thinking of the biblical story of Lot and his wife escaping from the ruin of Sodom and Gomorrah, though it is the wife in that story who fails to obey the divine order to not look back, and suffers transformation into a pillar of salt. Now later, during the era of classical Greece, if not before then, Orpheus, just like Dionysius and Demeter and Persephone, would become the central figure of another religious movement and religious rites. We will discuss all of that in the second unit of episodes about ancient Greece, probably sometime next year. Now, there is a lot to be explored in such stories and their existence across a broad spectrum of mythologies and different cultures, from the descent into the underworld and these always-failed tests of faith and obedience, and the inevitability of both death and the will of the gods, as Gilgamesh discovered when he returned empty-handed and unsatisfied from his own journey into the underworld in the Sumerian epic about him. These would all make excellent research topics for a thesis, but we must cover a lot of ground. So, let's move on. Now, there is a very large body of myths surviving from the time of ancient Greece that involves one particular figure, Heracles. You might know of him through the Romanized version of his name, Hercules, but we will stick with the Greek original in this series of podcasts. When I first began studying Greek history, literature, and myth as an adult, I was shocked by the amount of material and references made about Heracles. With what little I had learned in my public school upbringing, I thought of Heracles as nothing more than a romanticized version of a high school bully, basically a brain-dead, muscle-bound brute who solved all his problems by flexing his biceps a few times. How wrong I was. The playwrights of ancient Greece, including Sophocles and Euripides, wrote numerous dramas for the stage about this mythical figure. Plato mentions this hero in several different dialogues, and he is admired openly by most of those who speak or write about him. Now, Heracles is in many ways the patron saint of ancient Greece, the figure to whom many look for inspiration. Certainly the body of myths associated with him outweigh those of nearly all other mythical characters and events, with only the works of Homer and his characters really possessing more importance in the Greek mind. In fact, as I have stated before with regard to many of the figures of Greek myth, you could write books or a series of books about Heracles, not just reflecting on the surviving myths about him, but also about his significance in ancient Greek culture. Here, we will just have to be satisfied with an incomplete summary of his life later when we come to classical greece there will be more time to consider about this hero when we look at the dramatic and tragic plays of that time now the circumstances of heracles birth are quite involved essentially forming a soap opera and just describing how he was born and grew up zeus lusted for alcmene the wife of amphitryon a greek leader and warrior the olympian god posed as alcmene's husband returned early from a war, and he slept with her shortly before her real husband Amphitryon actually returned. As a result, Alcmene became simultaneously pregnant with sons from both fathers. Heracles was the son of Zeus, and his half-brother Iphicles was the son of the mortal father. Now at birth, Heracles' name was actually Alcides, that's A-L-C-I-D-E-S, Alcides. His name was changed later as an unusual solution to the animosity of the goddess Hera, who reviled all of Zeus' offspring through other lovers. In a twisted series of events, the infant Heracles actually ended up briefly in the care of Zeus' wife Hera, who was unaware of his identity. She nursed him briefly, and this, the divine mother's breast milk, is likely what led to him being so unusually strong, since simply being Zeus's son does not seem to impart great strength in other examples. Here is one of many famous stories about Heracles' infancy. Hera sent two snakes into the room in which Heracles and his twin brother slept, hoping to destroy them both. While his brother Iphicles cried, baby Heracles grabbed the snakes with his bare hands and strangled them. Perhaps the most tragic episode in the life of Heracles is his marriage to Megara, the daughter of Creon. Now, Creon was the king of Thebes, and we will hear much more about him when we come to the story of Oedipus. But anyway, Heracles married this king's daughter, and she gave him children. But in another long convoluted story, Herod drove Heracles mad, and in his madness, he murdered his wife and their children. Now, after Heracles is cured of this madness, the Oracle of Delphi instructs him to expiate the evil that he has done by serving one king, Eurystheus. This king initially gives Heracles ten famous labors to perform, ten mighty deeds, some of which seem to verge on the impossible. Before Heracles is finished with all of them, the king adds two more tasks, and so we have the long-cherished tale of the twelve labors of Heracles. I will not describe all of these labors. The most important point that I can make about them, though, is that they are not a series of encounters in which Heracles flexes his muscles and kills a beast or lifts something heavy. Does his strength play a role in his heroism and his fame? Absolutely. But Heracles is more admired for how he uses his strength, as a tool of his wits, which are sharp. His bravery goes without mentioning, but Heracles is cunning, not just strong. He is also patient and he demonstrates the willingness to suffer, to suffer not just physical pain, but personal shame. Many of his adventures do involve slaying or capturing fearsome beasts. His fifth labor, though, the cleaning of the Augean stables, may tell us much more about his character than any of his other labors. According to the, ta- to the tale, Helios, the god of the sun, had given to his son, his son Augeus, 3,000 cattle as a gift. Kept in royal stables these strange cattle deposited poisonous feces everywhere and made maintenance of the stables impossible. Heracles was tasked with cleaning these stables. Now, instead of risking his health in a vain effort to use his strength to shovel all the filth away, he instead uses his strength to divert the flow of river water so that it might completely wash the stables out, having first moved the cattle to safety, of course. In addition to demonstrating his intelligence at problem-solving, the accomplishment of this labor also shows Heracles' willingness to suffer ignominy. Presumably still guilt-ridden for having murdered his family, he is willing to do dirty work, to suffer mockery, for having to clean excrement. Heracles becomes, in some sense, a suffering god for the Greeks. Certainly, in the surviving tragedies of classical Greece, Heracles has by then become such, He's not just a paragon of bravery, but someone who has shared in the experiences and suffering of the human race, having lost loved ones, and having also committed acts both good and evil. In the plays written about him, he is very much a relatable and sympathetic character. Now, the demise of his first wife did not undermine Heracles' instinctual desires. He went on to have many children with an assortment of women throughout his life. His posterity is sometimes referred to as the Heraclids, or the Heraclidae in English, the sons of Heracles. In particular, the ch- this children of one of his sons, Hylas, were referred to this way. Now the sons of this Hylas, these Heraclids, were cheated of their inheritance, their dominion over the Peloponnesian Peninsula, by the same king Eurystheus, who had burdened Heracles with his twelve labors. Eurystheus was allegedly assisted in this usurpation by the goddess Hera, who never let up with her grudge against the hero of inhuman strength, even going so far as to deny Heracles' descendants any rest in this world. The Heraclids, after being run out of the Peloponnesus, initially sought refuge in Athens before retiring farther north to Thessaly, a northern part of Greece. Generations later, according to the legend, they came out of Thessaly and returned to the Peloponnesus conquered it and became the various peoples living there in classical times, including the Spartans that we remember. This episode of legendary history is known as the Return of the Heraclids. Now, many modern-day researchers interpret this legend of the Heraclids as a way of explaining the presence of the Dorian dialect of Greece throughout the Peloponnesian Peninsula. They posit that there was possibly some sort of invasion of a northern people speaking the Doric dialect, and that the legend of the Heraclids was the popular recounting and explanation of a real event, a real invasion. This may have something to do with the invasions of the Sea Peoples, or perhaps with the Bronze Age Collapse. However, there is virtually no evidence to support this idea, neither the legend nor the purported invasion that it may be trying to explain. The story of Jason and the Argonauts may be the first crossover story in history. In today's entertainment world, a crossover is a written work in which distinct characters form from different already established storylines now interact in one universe. Think of the recent Marvel comic films in which Iron Man, Captain America, and the Norse God Thor somehow all come together to fight injustice. Now, in a typically convoluted Greek story, Jason is born of noble lineage, but deprived of his inheritance— Raised in secret by a centaur to keep the usurper of his father's kingdom from killing him, Jason returns as a young man to Iolcus, the city of his birth. The usurper, named Peleus, had already been warned by an oracle that he should beware a man wearing only a single sandal. Jason loses a sandal crossing a river and arrives before the usurper and announces that he is the true king. Peleus challenges this idea and demands that Jason bring back the golden fleece. Now, this golden fleece is the product of another separate myth in which a flying ram, or male sheep, saves a certain hero. Oddly, the ram is then sacrificed in thanks to the gods, and its unique golden fleece is preserved. Anyway, Jason gathers a band of famous Greek heroes from dozens of different tales, among them Heracles and Orpheus, to man a special fast ship named the Argo. They travel together to Colchis, a port on the eastern shore of the Black Sea, and undergo many adventures on the way. Once in Colchis, Jason learns that he must perform three special, very difficult tasks before receiving the golden fleece from the king there. Before attempting these nearly impossible tasks, the daughter of the king, Medea, falls in love with Jason. She aids him with her prior knowledge of the difficulties involved in fulfilling her father's request. The final task requires them to get past a fierce dragon guarding the fleece. Medea brews a potion and puts the dragon to sleep, and then she, Jason, and the Argonauts flee. In aiding their mutual escape, according to one tradition, Medea kills her brother, dismembers him, and throws pieces of his corpse into the sea, distracting her pursuing father, who stops to gather the floating limbs. Now, the character of Medea will be revisited when we come to Classical Greece and read the play about her written by Euripides, She is what you might call an ancient example of a witch, a woman empowered with knowledge of natural remedies and herbal poisons, but also possessed of supernatural powers. The story of her and Jason's tumultuous married life will be discussed in that future episode as well. There are a host of other myths worthy of discussion. You may know the names of Daedalus and Icarus already. Daedalus was a famous genius of the Aegean realm, known not for any supernatural powers so much, but more for his knowledge of physics, architecture, and the general mechanics of everything. He is credited with the invention of various tools and weapons in different traditions, and he is most notably remembered as the designer of the labyrinth of King Minos, in which dwelled the Minotaur. Daedalus appears in more than one myth as a supporting character, but in the myth about his son, Icarus, he is a central and tragic figure. In the previous episode, I mentioned the myth of the labyrinth of King Minos and the Minotaur there. After the Greek hero Theseus killed the Minotaur and escaped with the daughter of Minos, this long-suffering king had the genius designer Daedalus and his son imprisoned in that same labyrinth as punishment for aiding Theseus. Now, Daedalus knows that escape by sea or land is pointless, as King Minos had such a long arm and controlled all routes in and out of the kingdom. So the famous inventor constructs two pairs of wings from fallen bird feathers and string and wax. Presumably, the labyrinth was roofless. The father and son then fly up out of the maze and away to safety. Now, Icarus loses his own life in providing us with the moral of this story. He refuses to follow his father's advice to stay low and away from the sun as the two of them flee the island kingdom by air. Icarus soars high in his ambition and his recklessness. The heat of the sun melts the wax holding the wings together, and the boy falls to his death. Now I could go on forever, falling like Icarus deeper and deeper into the sea of myth. I still have not told you of the nine muses who inspire men to seek greater knowledge and skill or the three graces of beauty, charm, and creativity? Or what about Narcissus and Echo, Eros and Psyche, the numerous stories of Apollo, Artemis, and Athena, and their admirers, lovers, and rivals? And I've skipped Sisyphus, who eternally dwells in Tartarus, rolling a boulder uphill, only to see it rolled back down before he can successfully reach the top. And did you know that the ancient Greeks had their own version of the story of Noah's flood, in which Deucalion and Pyrrha husband and wife, escape a flood sent by a predictably angry Zeus. After the deluge subsides, they exit the boat and, per the instructions of the repentant gods, throw stones that turn into a new population of men and women. I could make the episode longer, but it would only include every detail of every myth by becoming an encyclopedic killjoy of a podcast. Already, it is a somewhat dry run through the major myths of ancient Greece. But there are more myths to come. I will discuss them as they become pertinent to certain specific episodes in Greek history, but I will admit now I will not do justice to Greek mythology within the confines of this podcast. Hopefully, though, I will achieve at least my minimum goal of familiarizing the listener with some of the most critical themes in Greek myth, not just those that demonstrate ancient Greek thought, but more particularly those that continue to play a role in the modern Western mind. And, hopefully, you are inspired to find a book that will satisfy your curiosity about these matters. Some of them are advertised on the website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. Eventually, as we will see in future episodes, Western philosophy and religion will turn away from this pagan foundation toward Christianity. And, even today, most philosophical and religious thinking in the West, even non-religious thinking, are reflections of, or reactions against, the Christian background. But, in its transition to Christianity, Western culture will carry with it many of the concepts and concerns that are expressed in Greek myths. Into the Middle Ages, peasants peasants will be worshipping these gods, or others like them, side by side with Jesus and the Virgin Mary, making prayers in church to the Holy Trinity, and making private sacrifices and libations to older gods. And even after that period, they will not be forgotten. Consider the art of the Renaissance, depicting Greek god after Greek god, and the heroes of Greece from Heracles down to Alexander the Great. When I taught my own teenage sons about Dante and had them read his Inferno, I made sure that they noted how the Greek and Roman gods existed in the story alongside the Christian saints and played such an important role in medieval Christian thought, even a thousand years after the old gods were supposedly conquered and forgotten. No, like the roots that I mentioned in the first series about the ancient Near East. Though these stories may sometimes seem strange, our modern cultural trunk and branches depend on them. Though they descend into the darkness beneath the ground, the underworld if you will, we draw nourishment from their hidden purchase in the ancient soil of Europe. These stories are worth knowing. I look forward to telling you more about the gods of ancient Greece and their role in human history in the next episode about the Trojan War. Until then, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.